1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll pray before we begin. There was a time and a place in history where it was very common for a plaque to be fastened to the pulpit of the church that only the preacher could see. And the plaque would read, Sir, we would see Jesus. And that was the reminder to the preacher of his job, as if the congregation were saying, We've come here for one purpose, and that is to see Jesus Christ. As we pray, I hope that you'll make that your prayer, that, that the Holy Spirit would help us to see Christ this morning. So let's pray. Father, there's nothing else in all the world that we need more over the next several minutes and for the rest of our lives. There's nothing that we need more than to see more of the beauty and majesty of your Son. And we know that that's what you desire to, to show us. So, Father, would you please glorify your Son in our eyes and in our hearts as we consider what you have done in and through him. And it's in his name that we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning I want to return to the statement made by the Apostle Paul in verse 24 of this chapter where we read, and I'm, I'm trimming the sentence here, but the end of that verse, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now last Lord's Day we just barely touched on it, and so I want to try to spend a little bit more time considering this phrase, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, and specifically by asking this question, what is Paul saying when he says that? I wonder if you could answer that question. If somebody brought to you a Bible and they turned it around to you and they said, right here the apostle says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's he saying? What does that mean? That's what I'm going to try to answer. What is he saying? Now we do know why he said it. He's addressing factions in the church. They had been dividing over their favorite preaching and preachers. Paul has already shown that God has determined that through preaching and through the preaching of the cross that He would confound the wisdom of men, not exalt the wisdom of men. So this is not something that we get to come to and hold up in glory in ourselves. It actually humiliates all of us, but it exalts Christ. That's God's purpose. These people in this church wanted to prop themselves up by naming their favorite preachers. God comes in through the preacher and through the preaching of the cross and He destroys that wisdom. He makes it look silly. And the positive aspect of that is that it is only in and through this message and this method, the preaching of the cross, that men can be saved. This thing that, that confounds men is the only thing that will save men. And so it reduces us all to nothing. We have our human wisdom. I want to put forth my wisdom. God says, I, I won't accept your wisdom. I'm going to do something that you think is foolish. And by doing that, I will save men. That's what Paul is saying at. The Christ on the cross was foolish to the Greeks who wanted wisdom. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. But he says it was wisdom and power to those being saved. That's why he's making this statement. It's the sort of the coming to a climax of this argument. He's applying his argument to their particular case. But again, the question that I want to answer is, what is he saying? He's sort of summarizing up his mission. My mission was to preach Christ as the wisdom and power of God. But what does that mean? What exactly was Paul doing in any place in any time whenever he preached that Christ was the power of God and the wisdom of God? 
What is any preacher actually saying? If I say to you, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. What am I saying? You realize the difficulty there in our thinking. There's a figure in our minds, a person, Jesus Christ. I'm saying He is the wisdom of God. Wisdom in our minds doesn't compute with a figure. Power doesn't, doesn't, doesn't relate to or compute with a figure, a person. But what we're saying, what Paul's saying is, Christ is the wisdom and power of God. What does that mean? Well, in, in, the answer to this question is really bringing us back to the great theme which occupies all preaching that can call itself Christian preaching. It's the central theme of the entire New Testament. It's really the central theme of all of Scripture. The answer to this question is God's answer to the problem of sin. It's the great revelation of God Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, we preach Christ, or we preach the absolute supremacy and glory and majesty of the Son of God as it is seen, as that glory is seen in the Son of God saving sinners. Many people are seeking all these different things. We preach one thing. Now men recognize that they have a need. People see a problem or some problems. And then they set themselves to seeking and to searching. We've got to meet this need. We've got to fix this problem. What Paul's saying here is God has already preempted all of our seeking and all of our searching through Jesus Christ, through His Son. Wisdom is the scheme or, or plan or worldview by which men try to make some sort of advancement in their condition to their own glory. Power is the capability to produce a real lasting change. They, they want power and they want wisdom, the way to get to that power. And the whole race of fallen men are engaged in this never-ending rat race to try to find the wisdom that will lead to the power. They're searching. They're seeking. They're clamoring. Paul says the Christian message is really this simple. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the answer. The sum and substance of the message of Christianity is, is found in this one incomprehensible figure that we know as Jesus of Nazareth and what God has done in and through Him. Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God. Now, what is He not saying? He's not speaking here of, of the essence of the nature of God or what we would, say, we would call God ontologically. That argument would go sort of like this. The wisdom of God is God. It's not something God has. It's who He is. The power of God is God. It's not something God has. It's who God is. Well, Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the power of God. That's a true statement. Those are true things. But that's not what Paul has in mind here because remember, Paul's theme is the preaching of the cross of Christ. Paul's theme is the cross of Christ as the message of the preacher to fallen men. In other words, Paul is thinking specifically of Christ as he exists in this role as the only mediator between God and men. That is the man Christ Jesus. Anytime you hear Christ, you're thinking mediator, dual natures, true God, true man, one person. That's, that, all of that is bound up in Christ. That's what he means. Not, not God ontologically or the Son of God ontologically, but the Son of God as he is the mediator between God and men. Paul is saying that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God to men and for men for their salvation. That's what he's saying. We preach Christ and Him crucified as the wisdom of God for men. 
We preach Christ and Him crucified as the power of God for men. Now this does manifest the glory of God, but it's not for God. God doesn't need to perform a work of salvation to add to His glory. He's not any more glorious or less glorious whether we're all saved or lost. It's not adding to His essential glory. Christ did not come as a mediator to benefit God or to help God. No, it was for us. He came for us, for man. So Paul has in view specifically Christ as the Lord and Savior of men. So the Jews would say, show us some power. Show us some mighty deed. Disrupt the cosmos. Let us see God breaking into the world and doing something that we can't explain. Then we'll believe. Give us a sign. The Greeks would say, well, let, let us hear this new thing, this new teaching. Present your case for this still yet to be discovered secret to life and happiness. Well, what is it? Well, we'll hear you again. Explain what you have. And we'll put that in our portfolio and we'll wait on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Paul says we preach Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ as the fulfillment of everything that men seek. If you're still seeking, if you're still searching, if you're still trying to find that one thing that will put all of the busyness and anxiety and worry and, and fruitless labor of your life to rest, look no further than Jesus Christ. He's the answer. That's what Paul's saying. He's the power. That's Paul's message. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now hopefully you've noticed, and this is kind of the way that I listen to things and analyze things, but hopefully you've noticed I've not answered the question yet. I've still not explained what this means. What is he saying? Well, he's making a statement about the inestimable glory and majesty and goodness of God to men in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as Dr. Owen says, what we can express in comparison of what it is in itself is even less than nothing. All of our explaining, all of our articulation, all of my attempts in the next several minutes to explain, here's what he means by Christ, the wisdom of God, the power of God. At the end of it, in comparison to who he is in reality, it will be as if we step two steps backwards. Because I've had to use human words and phrases and ideas. But if we can just get a... a a glimpse of a shadow of His glory, that little sliver of a shadow will be more valuable than all of the treasures that this world has to offer. Just a little sight, a little glimpse in, in, into this person. So let's, let's consider Christ, the wisdom of God, and the power of God, specifically with regard to man's salvation. Again, I'm trying to answer the question, what is he saying? So, number one, wisdom. I'm going in this in, in the logical order. Wisdom. Christ is the wisdom of God. Men seek wisdom. We preach Christ as the wisdom of God. Men have their wisdom. God has His wisdom. Man's wisdom is actually foolishness. God's wisdom, Christ. We said last week that wisdom is the directive excellency of the divine nature. That by wisdom, God guides, disposes, and orders and directs all things unto His own glory. That's the wisdom of God. Wisdom says Owen a little more succinctly, is the directive principle of all divine operation. So the wisdom of God is God having a full, perfect, complete knowledge of all things, 
ordering and arranging all things for His own glory. So that every one of His perfections is shown in the most beautiful and glorious light that it could possibly be shown. God arranging everything to that end. That's His wisdom. God's wisdom. Now again, this is meant to be a contrast to the effects of the fall and the fruit of sin in the wisdom of man. Which is, again, actually just foolishness. God has His wisdom. Man does not submit to God's wisdom. Man has his own wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. That, that phrase, sought out many schemes, that is man's wisdom. That is man setting himself to find out some way, some plan, some method, some, some ideology that's going to advance me. That's man trying to order and direct and guide all of the things at his disposal to advance his state and his cause. That's what man's seeking. God made man this way. Man went this way. We've got a plan. We left God. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That turning to his own way. That's just man's wisdom. That is, that is, a, that is a, a, a we, could, we could call that an exposition of man's wisdom. Man sets himself to say, I'm going to go this way. I've got my ideas. I've got my plans. I've got my goals and my purposes. I'm going to arrange everything in my world to get me in that direction. And man's wisdom is a way of estrangement from God. Turned his own way. God's way, man's way. This is man's wisdom. This is what he does. And now, where do we see that? Where do we see man's wisdom? I want to give you some glasses that you can wear from now on, and you'll be able to see man's wisdom. Because really, we see it everywhere. Everywhere. All around us, everywhere you go, every direction that you turn, you are seeing the product and outworking of man's wisdom. All of man's labor and toil is the outworking of his wisdom. All of the things that men give themselves to, Sunday through Saturday, Sunday through Saturday, Sunday through Saturday, that's man's wisdom. Every plow that a, put, a man puts his hand to, every iron that our race puts in the fire to try to see if we can't get some sort of product or some uh, fruit out of it, try to produce something, all of that is it's just man's wisdom working itself out. We've got a scheme, we've got a plan, we've got an arrangement, we've got an order. We are on our way to, to better ourselves. Now if you look around, you'll notice everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. Everywhere you go, any day of the week, there is a constant hustle and bustle of coming and going, of rising up, of laying down, of, of arriving here, leaving here to go there, planning this so that we can go there. It's all aiming after something. There's a reason why people are doing the things that they're doing. Now, we know that the, the way to destruction is the broad way. So I think it's safe to say that most of the people that we are going to see on a daily basis, even if it's just driving through an intersection or driving down the opposite lane on the interstate, what we're seeing is a, a world full of people who are not aiming at the glory of God in what they're doing. They're going about executing their own wisdom. So what are they aiming at? Why are they so busy? In all this bustle, it is really just the outworking of their wisdom. They're just like the Greeks. They're trying to get to that, that one next step of advancement. Whatever it is in their mind, every individual person might have their own way. Maybe they want a job promotion. Or maybe they just want job security. Or maybe they just want a paycheck at the end of the week. But there's a reason why they got up and have gone about their day. Maybe it's personal happiness. They're trying to, to be happy. Or maybe they, they want to bring about some sort of peace in their family or, or relational peace with other people. Or maybe they're looking for financial safety or a, a feeling of fulfillment or contribution. They want to feel like they've done something to, to contribute to society. 
or maybe it's philanthropic. You know, they, they just want to feel like they've done some good deed for, for other men, for the human race. And so they, they set themselves about their day to do some good thing. And all of them, if you, if you could ask every one of them, we stopped, got stopped at a license check this weekend. Just stopping every car. If you could stop every one of them and say, where, where are you going and why are you doing that? They would be able to give some sort of answer. Well, I'm going to work. Why? Well, I've got to work to pay my bills. Why? Well, because if, if I don't pay my bills, they take my stuff. Yeah, but why do you care? Well, I want to keep my stuff because I like my stuff. Okay. That makes sense. There's your answer. You may go on. Everybody has an answer. And it all comes back ultimately to this. These are the innumerable schemes of man. Every man going his own way without God, attempting to find some respite in his soul for the universal, unspoken, felt needs of man. Universal, everybody's got them. Everybody knows them. Everybody feels them. Unspoken, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit it. Needs in the human soul. Every human being has built within them by their maker these needs that must be addressed, these questions that have to be answered, problems that face the whole human race. Again, we don't like to talk about them. Most of the time we don't like to call them for what they are. Maybe some people are more honest about it than others, but really we just sort of generalize things. We have this, these problems and people... The race of mankind gives their whole lives to trying to fix the problem, trying to meet the need. For example, at the most basic level, the souls of men are empty, absolutely empty. That nagging sensation that there must be something more, but they cannot find it, they cannot attain it, is enough to drive many men insane, and it has driven many people to take their own life. There's got to be something more. I can't find it here. I'm done. Empty in their souls. People acquire status. I've now got my head higher than my neighbor. Nothing. It doesn't make them happy. They obtain possessions. It's not enough. They move along the, the stage of life cycle. Well, i got to finish school. Why? So that I can go to more school. Why? So I can get a degree. Why? So I can get a job. Why? So I can buy the car in the house. Why? So that I can then get married. Why? So I can have children. Why? Well, so that I can then have grandchildren. Why? And then they lay on their deathbed and they say, I've got nothing. I'm empty. I gave my, I gave my whole life. I've got nothing. I'm empty. And they will admit that. They're empty in their souls. As Isaiah 55, 2 says, they labor for that which does not satisfy. And we see it all around us. And people try to mask it with things like drugs or just fulfilling every lust. Everything that they're at, they set their eyes on, give it to me. I'm trying to find pleasure. I just want to find some satisfaction. A lot of people will turn completely inward on themselves. And they'll say, well, I just got to focus on me. I, got, I need some me time. I got to get along with me. And they start looking inward, deeper, 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 deeper. And what does that lead to? Absolute despair because there's nothing there. Their souls are empty. In addition to this, there's the problem of sin and slavery to sin. People recognize they are enslaved to their lusts and their passions. And yet, especially where we are, our society is too civilized to actually let people live out what they really want to do inside. Now, they'll try to justify their sins. They'll, oftentimes, they'll just give in to their sins and then treat the consequences as if that's the normal routine of life. Everybody goes through this. You know, well, you know, I was having an affair and my, my husband left me, so we're going through a nasty divorce. You know, you know, everybody's, everybody's that way. Oh, my, my, I raised my kids a certain way, and well, now this one's gone off into this lifestyle. And well, that's, you know how kids are. They just got to do this. Like, that's just normal. This is the routine. Everybody goes through this, so let's justify it with, with that. But really, it's, the fact is, I'm a slave to my sin and my passions, and that is what has led me to where we are. For many people, they'll try to find more acceptable forms of their sin. 
And much of man's scurrying about and driving here and there and spending this money and that time is really just trying to acquire those more acceptable forms of satisfying their lusts because they're in bondage. They can't get free. They've got to find another way to make an application of it. For example, and I don't think this is a problem here, but it's a good example. They say, oh, you know what, I, I'm, I can't help but steal. I can't help but covet. I can't help but want what is not mine. I want what I do not have, and I'm not willing to work for it. Well, I guess I'll just have to drive to the Indian reservation out at Cherokee and go to the casino. The casino there, there, all of those sins, covetousness and theft and a, and a sluggard's way of getting, what's legal and exalted and glorified? It's acceptable there. They're busy. That's just an example. They're slaves. So we've got to find an easier, more acceptable way to satisfy that lust. They can't get free. A third problem innate in all men, fallen men, is the ignorance of God. They were created to know and worship God. They know that He's there, but they can't, they can't get Him. They can't find Him. They don't know Him. So they have to come up with another scheme. Man's wisdom must be set up. What's, what's this scheme we're going to come up with to, to find God? Well, it would be a lot easier actually if we just create a new God and we'll put Him where we can find Him and there He is. Or I'll act as if I am God. Therefore, when I look in the mirror, there He is. There's God. Found Him. Or let's just deny the existence of God altogether. That'll make us feel better. Oh, there is no God. And yet there's still this nagging sensation that He is there. They know that He's there and that doesn't satisfy. They might say, well, such knowledge can't be known. We can't really know if there is actually a God or not. Well, why? Well, because I tried and I couldn't find Him. Your, your knowledge ran out, so you go into agnosticism. Or we'll elevate some ideology to the place of God and worship that. So we'll worship the God of science and ever-changing facts. We'll, we'll worship the God of economic success. We'll worship the God of patriotism, the God of human love and all of its perversions. Whatever form they come in, you've got to worship the God. Don't question the God. It's, it's love, right? Or the God of Mother Nature and animal worship, worshiping down at the Humane Society. We've got to have a God. We've got to have an ideology to, to give ourselves to. And, and are not these the kinds of things that fill up the minds of men and women and drive them in all of their pursuits in the world? This is what keeps people moving. It occupies their schedule and their pocketbook. They wake up thinking, what is the way that I can serve God today? but it's their own, a God of their own making because they do not know the true God. A fourth problem that keeps the human race moving at a steady pace is, is the aching guilt for sin and the expectation of a coming judgment. People know that they are sinners. And people wake up and live and lay down at night with a burden of guilt for their sins. And they know, or at least they have a sneaky suspicion deep down, that a day of reckoning is coming. They know it's coming. So they suppress that. Suppress that guilt with, with other deeds. This is their scheme. This is their wisdom. I'll, I'll know how to get rid of that guilt. We'll just go about it this way. We'll, we'll do more good things than bad things. There, I'm not guilty anymore. Or they compare themselves to other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. Whew, I'm not guilty anymore. They're way worse than me. Or they assume that there might be some laxity in God, that the, the, the final judgment that is coming, it, it won't be so bad. He'll take it easy on us. We're all guilty, right? He'll go easy. Outwardly, they just stay busy and noisy to, to try to, to snuff out this guilt, keep the screen going. Keep some noise playing. Keep the, the soundtrack playing. Keep a phone nearby so you can keep the text thread moving, always in conversation. Keep the calendar full. So all of these so that there's no quiet time or downtime where I have to sit and actually think about what I'm doing and that I'm guilty of sin and that I will answer for my sins. Guilt. If they just stop and consider the reality, most men know that their very nature is the problem. 
Their nature is the problem. All these things that I just listed, that's just who they are. We would say as a race, that's just who we are. We can't change it. We can't get out of it. Now, we comfort ourselves with that. It must not be so bad. We're all like this. No, that's how bad it is. We're all like this. And so they'll set up their wisdom once again, a scheme to somehow plaster over the issue, the universality of the problem. Everybody is, everybody's like this. This is the nature of every man. So it must not be so bad. Or they'll blame God. God made me this way. He gave me this nature. It's not my fault. It's His. Many people will, will flatten the human nature with that of animals. And they'll act like, well, we're just acting like the animals act. We're just doing what they do. It's, it's, all, it's all animal instinct and we can't really be held liable. Nobody holds the, the animals liable for the way that they, they live and we're just animals too. Or they divide up the human nature. They'll say, well, the physical part is guilty of sin. But, but deep down in my soul, I'm good. God knows my heart. Or they'll come up with some spiritual good that comes from their physical sins. My nature, my physical nature, yeah, it sins, but, but it really brings me joy and happiness inside. I know that deep down this is probably actually what's best for me. Their nature is corrupt. And then all of that funnels down to what is probably the greatest problem that men seek to address, and that's the problem of death. They know death is coming. It's all around us. We see it all the time. We hear of it. The Bible says they are subject to a lifelong fear of it. They know it's coming. And so they set up their wisdom. We've got to come up with a scheme. Let's come up with a plan. Let's come up with a, 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 an ideology. Some practices to address the, the problem of death. This is man's wisdom. Some would say, I got it. Let's just avoid it or ignore it. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Maybe that'll help. Others set up this, their wisdom and they say, well, let's just assume that death, since it comes to all men, death is the thing that sort of settles the score so that after death, once you've gone through that veil, well, we're really all on the same playing field. Either everybody goes to heaven or we're all annihilated and we just cease to exist. But really death is, is not going to be such a big deal. A lot of people try to stave off death with body worship and, and drugs or, or try to cloak the reality of death with surgery and clothing and hair dye and face paint. They look in the mirror and they say, I'm getting old. That means death is coming. Let me cover all that up so that at least I can convince myself that death is not as close as I really know that it is. And so many of the parking lots in our world are full of cars and stores are full of people trying to live out their wisdom, these methods to stave off death. It's not really coming. It's not going to be so bad. I can extend this thing out if I do all of these things because people don't want to reckon with the reality of death. Have you been to a funeral lately? No, you haven't. We don't have funerals anymore. We have celebrations of life. You know why? Because nobody wants to admit we're here because this person's dead. They were alive. You should have celebrated their, their life while they were living. Now that they're dead, that's why we're here. Somebody has died. But no, we're going to celebrate their life. We don't want to reckon with the fact they're dead and everybody in the room is heading, headed that way. We will all die. Death is the great enemy. The problem that all men see and no one wants to acknowledge and so they might cloak all of their busyness and their scurrying about under some other name, but really what they're trying to do is ignore the reality or, or fend off the reality of looming death. Men and women, boys and girls, busy themselves seven days a week with a host of activities, all because they can feel within them these nagging problems. Their souls are empty. They're slaves to sin. They don't know God. They're guilty. And they expect the judgment. They know they can't change themselves. And death is right around the corner. So they set up all of their ways. How can we deal with all this? How can we answer all this? That, and it keeps the world spinning. It keeps, the, keeps everything that we know moving. Our economy, our society, world civilizations, kingdoms, they are running because of the fact that men recognize these realities, these problems, because they've chosen to go their own way. 
or they've set up their own wisdom. All the pursuits give no return. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Solomon said, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Man's wisdom is always a quest to meet these problems and answer them, yet to no avail. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't work. Now in response, Paul says, we preach Christ as the wisdom of God. Not the wisdom of men. God's wisdom. God's way. God's scheme. God's plan. God's method. Christ. Now in thinking of God's wisdom, again, I have to speak in human terms. We have in mind what we might call the planning phase. Ordering, directing, guiding. The planning phase of God's work in salvation. His wisdom. And we might imagine God in eternity laying out the blueprint that we would call His eternal decree. The blueprint of all things whatsoever come to pass. And contained in this blueprint is the way in which God will guide, dispose, order, and direct all things for His own glory. But before he puts his eternal and immutable pen to the paper, before anything is arranged, he calls to him his son. He calls his son to his side. And he says, son, you will be the one to guide, dispose, order, and direct all things. All of this will be for you. It will resound to your glory and your honor. It's all for you. You design it. You bring it to pass. And then when it's done, you'll receive all the praise. It was the least the Father could do for this one who from eternity had been in His bosom and had held his heart captivated with love and delight. It was the least that he could do to see him exalted in glory and praise and majesty forever and ever. So he calls to him his son. Come here, son. As Proverbs 8 says, Wisdom speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight. And then he goes on to say that he was rejoicing and delighting in the children of man. Eternal wisdom says, Father, oh how I would love to have the children of men by my side to see my glory like you see it and like I see it. Could I bring them to see my glory? And the Father says, I've already told you. Order it, arrange it, dispose it, execute it. It's all for you. This is the Christ. He is the wisdom of God speaking. He's the scheme. He's the plan. Or if we put it in the form of a question, who is this Christ? He is the plan, the planner, and the purpose of all of God's works. He is the salvation of God and He is the reason for God's salvation. And it says He was set up. He was fixed, permanently nailed down in the center of these plans of all of God's works. And He would be the one from eternity. He would be the one from whom and through whom and to whom all things would be. This is in eternity. 
Is this God's wisdom, God's plan? If we were to ask, in what way can God dispose and regulate all of His acts so as to most gloriously display all of His divine perfections and excellencies and also exercise the highest and greatest communication of Himself to the universe and to men to the praise and honor and glory of His wisdom, what would it be? God's answer is Christ. God said, I'll give them a Christ. He is the wisdom of God. That's what Paul's saying. We preach Christ because this is what God preached. God presented a Christ, the very wisdom of God, the infinite mind of God in answering all of these problems that had been laid in man's rebellion is Christ. And again, we can imagine the Son, the Father. This is, this is humanly speaking. And the Son says to the Father, their souls are empty. They are destitute of any real value of life. There, there, there has to be some way that they can not merely have life, but what about abundant life? Father, what if we gave them eternal life? What if we gave them our life? Their souls are a desert wasteland. There has to be some way, Father, that our life could actually be put in them to well up into a spring of eternal life. Father, their souls are starving to death. You know what they need? They need bread from heaven. They've given themselves to every lust to no avail. Something needs to be presented to them that will not only avail, but make all of those other lusts appear like rubbish. In comparison, Father, they have no joy. There must be some way to give them joy, but not just a temporal fleeting joy that's going to rise and fall with circumstances. What if we gave them our joy? What if our joy could be given to them? They're enslaved to sin. There must be a way to set them free from this bondage. There must be a, they need to be delivered from their lusts. They don't know God. So there must be some way to make Him known. What if we could, I don't know, what if, what if we could exegete God to them? Open up, open up us to them in a way that they would understand. And, and then their eyes are going to have to be open to receive it. And even having their eyes open, well, they can't get to God. There, there, there has to be a way that, that God would actually go down to them and get them and then bring them back to Himself. They have to be brought to God. There, there has to be some way that they can be reconciled to their Creator that they have offended. But, but what about the guilt and expectation of judgment? Coming to God is only going to exacerbate the problem. These people are guilty of high crimes against their Creator. It's true that the soul that sins shall die, and yet the souls of sinful men are going to be the ones delivered from judgment. So there has to be a way to accomplish both. There has to be a rock to shelter them from the wrath, a rock that would take the brunt of the force of God's wrath, and they would feel none of it for their sin and their guilt. But then again, can any of this change their nature? They're by nature sinners. There has to be some real irreversible alteration made in their natures or they're just going to resort right back to their sinful ways. We've got to change their nature. And even still, it's still true that their own nature must suffer. Sins committed in flesh and blood have to be punished in flesh and blood. And yet there's not one of them nor the whole race of them that could shoulder the weight of this penalty. Even if you got all of them together to try to shoulder the, the, the wrath of God for the least of the sins of one of them, they would all be crushed. None of them can do it. Their nature has to be changed. Something has to be done there. There needs to be a change and an, an exaltation, something, something really, it's going to have to be something brand new, something that, that has never before been seen, something never imagined. 
And then what about that great enemy? Death. They're sinners. God's law demands that sinners die. Even the devil knows that. So there has to be some way for death to be defeated. The sting of death needs to be removed. There needs to be a change of hands with regard to the keys to death and Hades, but the devil's not going to give them up very easily. How can it be? We have all these problems. You can imagine this is, this is the, the infinite mind of God contriving the plan. And then we might imagine that God contrives the plan. And it's mapped out and He finally presents the blue, this blueprint, the eternal decree. He presents this blueprint to the heavenly hosts. And there, as He unrolls it, there's only one word. Christ. Christ. And all of the attention of heaven is turned to the eternal Son. He's the one who contrived the plan. It was His idea. He is the wisdom of God. And all of heaven erupts with unceasing praise because they too have longed to see this Son of God, this infinite wisdom, set forth in all of His majesty in a way that had never before seen. And so they're, in, they're into the plan. This is a great plan. And that which we know as the... the Wisdom of God is, in the language of the proverb, set up from of old. Here it is. God, Father, Son, and Spirit declare Christ. Here's the plan. That which we know as the person of Christ is laid in wisdom. That God the Son would take on human flesh and become a man. That He would remain true God and true man and, and, and die for the sins of His people. That which we call the work of Christ is laid down in wisdom. The incarnation, the perfect life, the atoning death, the resurrection, the exaltation to the Father's right hand, all of this is laid out. Nothing greater or higher than this could ever be imagined even in the mind of God because this is the mind of God to bring Himself the most glory, the most honor. Everything else funnels to this stream. Christ is the fountain of all of God's plans. He's the starting point. And He's the mock-up. And He's the final product. He is the wisdom of God. Now, who's going to be the one to actually bring all this about? These are, these are large plans. Who's going to bring it about? Well, that brings us to power. Christ is not only the wisdom of God... He's also the power of God. Remember, power is that effective excellency of the divine nature. What infinite wisdom designs, infinite power effects, brings it to pass. So the power of God is God actuating or bringing to pass what He has determined. Paul says, Christ, the power of God. Now again, when we think of Christ, we, we often just think of, of a man, a figure, and that's okay, we should. But He's far more than just a man or a figure. Christ is God effecting or bringing to pass all that infinite wisdom had arranged for man's redemption. As Christ Himself said in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I did it. Power. I brought it to pass. I did what you gave me to do. Now, again, man with all of his wisdom is powerless. He's impotent. Even if wisdom, infinite wisdom, had contrived this plan and then bestowed it upon the race of men and said, here, here is the plan for your redemption. Not one of us could have unfolded it. Not one of us could have accomplished it. The Jews demand signs of power. Why? Because they don't have any power. That's an admittance. Show us, show us something because we can't do it ourselves. The Greeks seek wisdom. Why? That's an admittance. We don't have wisdom. We're still seeking. The Greeks are still seeking. The world is still seeking. We don't have wisdom. We don't have power. Paul says we preach Christ as the power of God. Christ is the one in whom the plan is accomplished. Christ will do it. Again, we see the infinite wisdom of God 
and the plans of God laid from eternity, and we ask, who will bring it to pass? How will it be effected? We see the needs, but men can't address them. We see what needs to be done. We've got a plan for a Christ. We've got a scheme for His person and His work. Who is going to bring it to pass? Who can guarantee that all of this will certainly take place? And the answer is, look back at the same one who drew up the plans. Christ is the power. It's the same one. He will bring it to pass. He will apply it. The Son of God will go down and take human flesh and He will execute every bit of God's plans. All that wisdom ordained, power brings about. And this is what really confounded the wisdom of men. Because He'd done it all having come down. He'd done it all in apparent weakness. Christ is the one who delivered us from death. In John 11, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not I will resurrect you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Christ delivered us from death. Christ conquered death. In Hebrews 2, we see that He he took flesh and blood that He might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It was Christ who obtained the keys of death. Revelation 1.18, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I've got the keys of death and of Hades. It was Christ who removed death's sting. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He took its sting out. Now we ask, how did He do all this? How did He deliver us from death and conquer death and obtain the keys of death and remove the sting of death? How? By dying. The cross. He died. That moment when everybody said, we got Him. Even the demons of hell, we got Him. He conquers. He wins. In apparent weakness, He executes the design of wisdom over death itself. Christ took our nature and exalted it. He was born of woman. Galatians 4, the angel told Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Can you imagine the power that it takes to to take the Son of God and the nature of a man and put them together in one eternal person that will never come apart and yet never be confused, never be mixed. That's power. He takes our nature. And what does He do with our nature? That nature that was once crowned with glory and honor, what did we do with it? We took it as low as it could possibly go. We took the image of God to the pit of sin and hell. Worms don't do that. Worms have not rebelled against their Creator, but we have. We took the nature of man and we ran it through the dirt. What does Christ do? He takes that same nature and He unites it to the Son of God. And therefore, He honors the nature of man high above any created thing. Nothing else in all of creation has ever been united to the person of the Son of God. The human nature. He exalts that human nature by living out a perfect life of obedience in that nature. No one had ever done it. He bears the wrath of God in His human nature. He takes the human nature into the grave with Him. He raises the human nature from the dead and glorifies it. And if that weren't enough, He took the human nature into the heavens and sat it down beside God. That's what Christ has done with our nature. We couldn't do anything except go further. He takes it higher so that now the nature of a man, a human being, the man Christ Jesus, is the most exalted of all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's glory. It's Christ who by His Spirit changes our nature. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's in Him. 
The old has passed away, the new has come. He brings about a change that no man could. How did he do this? By coming down and joining that nature to himself. Being born in the likeness of men. Infinite power in a manger. Infinite power in a carpentry shop. Infinite power with no place to lay his head. Infinite power with no beauty that we should desire him. But in apparent weakness, he glorifies the nature of man. It was Christ who released us from guilt. How did He do it? Well, He bore the guilt for us. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. It was Christ who took the judgment of God for us. For our sake He made Him to be sin, that is, a sin offering, a pleasing aroma to God in our place, satisfying the wrath of God in His death. And so Paul asks, in light of this, with reference to guilt... Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why he said at the beginning of the chapter, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's Him, you see. He's released us from the guilt. In apparent weakness, He delivered us from guilt and judgment. He goes to trial. All these accusations are brought against him. doesn't say a word. Why? Because he's standing in our place. There's nothing to be said. He goes silently to the slaughter. Why? There's no defense to be made. He wasn't there for himself. He was there for us. And he dies in our place. It looks weak to men. There he is on the cross. Oh, how pitiful. And yet this is our release from guilt and expectation of judgment. It was Christ who came and exegeted the Father. John 1.18 He has made Him known. It was Christ who knew the Father and invites men to come to Him and thus the Father by Him. He makes God known to us. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And as our heads go down, as we hear all of that, no one knows the Father, no one knows the Son. As our heads go down, He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. This is not a hiding. This is not a a stealing away of God from man. This is a revealing of God to man. He he says, I've been given the charge to bring you to God, so come to me. That's what he's saying. It's Christ who reconciled us to God, Romans 5. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's Christ who gives us His Spirit, which gives us the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 4, Christ is the image of God, and God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. It was Christ... The power of God who made God known to men and reconciled men to God by coming down, by being Emmanuel, God with us. It was Christ who set us free from our bondage to sin. He's the one who delivered us. Romans 6 says, Our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It is Christ And knowing Christ that has made everything else to us seem as rubbish. As Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. Rather than being slaves to sin and our lusts, We now offer ourselves freely as willing slaves of God by the power of Christ. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That's the Melchizedekian priest, his power. Christ sets us free. How does he do this? He does this, it says in Romans 6, by dying to sin. The death he died, he died to sin. Not his sin, our sin. He didn't have any sin of his own. But he died to deliver us from the chains of sin. And therefore, it is Christ alone who can satisfy the empty souls of men. 
As Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. True rest and true peace are only found in Christ. Nothing else will do. He alone is the pearl of great price for which we would sell everything that we have. Christ is the one who gives the water of life to those who come to Him. It's the Spirit of Christ who becomes a well in us of eternal life. It's Christ who is the bread of heaven, satisfying our starving souls. It's Christ who's at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore. It's His joy that we enter into upon death. Enter into the joy of your Master. Christ gives us His peace. Not as the world gives. My peace I give to you. His peace now and His joy forever. Imagine the power and glory and fullness in the man Christ Jesus that He can captivate, nourish, and satisfy with an, in an ever-increasing manner all of the souls of all of the saints and all of the angels for all of eternity. And not one of any of us will ever say, it's just not what it used to be. Ever. That's power, fullness in this one. What ability is there in Christ? Well, how can this be? Well, because Christ is the power of God. He effects it all and is Himself the answer to all of these things, all of these issues. This is what Paul means, or at least a sliver of what Paul means when he says, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. Mankind with all his seeking and striving could never come up with anything like this. In Christ, says Paul, God has both purposed and produced. He's planned and he's accomplished the plan. He's contrived and conceived and he's given birth to perfection. He set his intentions and then he implemented the intentions in this one figure, this one Christ. So that in the end, in the salvation of sinners and the end of the whole affair of time and redemptive history, when all the smoke of the great day of the wrath of God, the great day of God, the day of the Lord, when all of the smoke has settled, we will see one thing, and it will be that one that was fixed from eternity in the center of the plan. We will behold Christ the Son, set up and established at the center, and we will be able to see all things were from Him, ordered by infinite wisdom. All things were then through Him, executed in every detail by infinite power. And all things are unto Him so that the very glory of God shines in His face forevermore. Now we divide it up here and now. We have to say what is wisdom, what is power. Let's put these things together. We divide it up here. We try to understand it and make sense of it. But on that day when freed from sinning, we shall see His lovely face. We will see that almighty power has accomplished what infinite wisdom arranged. And we will see both in Jesus Christ. One figure will captivate our attention for eternity. So then, what else is there? Answer the question in your heart. Don't watch the question. Don't listen to the question. This is not a podcast. What else is there? Answer the question in your soul. What else is there in the world, in the universe? What else? What else are you going to go after? What else is there to know? What else is there to understand? What else is there to give yourself to? This is the wisdom of God. This is the power of God. You're going to hear that and go somewhere else? That doesn't make any sense. What else is there besides Jesus Christ? So here's the application. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. So here's the application. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. God has slid his son across the table. He's taken his hands back and he says, he's yours for the taking. All you have to do is take. It's all take. I don't have any money. Perfect. That's how this restaurant works. You come empty pocketed and empty handed and you take Christ. That's the application. What else is there? It says, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. So when we see the bread broken before our eyes, again, we are not moving to a new subject. That glorious Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God is the one who hung on the cross. Again, we say, I don't understand it. How can, how can notions or ideas like wisdom and power be in a person? Well, it's because these are things of God. This is God who has taken on the nature of a man, assumed it to Himself, and hangs on the cross. Why is He hanging there? For us and for our salvation. So meditate upon Christ and Him crucified. This one, this glorious one, crucified for you. Him across the table from you saying, Take, this is my body for you. Christ for you. That's what is happening in the Lord's Supper. Those who are with us who are not yet members of this church, the same thing applies. Don't, le- don't move on without meditating. Go to Christ and think and your soul will be nourished there. So as the elements are passed, give yourself to that and then we'll come to the table together.